You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. robust first service I've ever been to at Forefront so far. And I think it's because of this club up here for the baptism today. This is a good fan club. Lots of energy coming from there. Um, so this is, this is our uh, third week of Advent, and we are in our series called Hidden Figures of Advent. And so this week we are talking about the donkey. So my question to you this morning is, have you ever been an ass in a Christmas pa- pageant? <laughs> have you ever? Probably not, or maybe you were. How many of you were ever in a Christmas pageant growing up? Raise your hands. Okay, a little bit. Okay, hands down. How many of you got to be Mary? Anybody? Nobody? A few people. A couple Marys starring. Any Josephs? Any Josephs? No? Any angels in the house? Okay, a couple angels. Uh, any, any wise men? Who was a wise man? Oh, okay, perfect. Love it. Well, one in the back, just Deacon Jim all by himself. Only <laughs> wise man in the house. How about a donkey? Was anybody the donkey? Nobody was the donkey. Classic, exactly. I was the angel, and let me just say, I looked fabulous in glitter and wings. Um, yeah, how did they not know I was gay as a kid? I don't, I don't really know. But I, I made a great angel, and there are a few of us that actually want to be the donkey, though, right? Everybody's fighting at the Christmas pageant. Who gets to marry? Who gets to be Joseph? All the new moms are fighting about if their baby will get to be baby Jesus that year. There's always a sort of back and forth, Right? People want to be the angels, they want to be the wise men. Those, those three kids in the youth group are in a super strong clique. Like, they want to be the wise men together so they don't get broken up for the pageant and they can, like, stand in the corner and scoff at everybody. Like, everybody has this, right? There's, like, always that rebellious kid in the youth group who would really like to be, like, the grumpy innkeeper who turns Jesus away as, like, this sort of, like, passive-aggressive things towards his parents that he doesn't really want to be in church. There's always this story, right? And then you have somebody who has to be the donkey. And I can remember several times the donkey was always the, the role in the Christmas pageant that people like most did not want to be. I remember one particular time they couldn't even find someone that was willing to be a donkey, so one of the adults had to be the donkey. <laughs> I can remember it, this has always been difficult. Why has it been difficult? Because, well, quite frankly... Being the donkey is not a glorious role. You don't get any lines. You basically just bring in Mary and baby Jesus, and you stand off stage eating some hay the rest of the time. Like, it's not a glorious role. Like, no one ever comes up to you afterwards and like, you were such a great ass. Like, no one does that at all, and so there's no recognition. But here's what's even more interesting to think about why no one else wants to be the donkey. The donkey isn't in the written Christmas story. If you open up the scriptures and you read the Christmas story, either Matthew or Luke's version, John gives us no version, you will find that there is no donkey, there is no word of any donkey in the Christmas story. The donkey is simply a part of our oral tradition. We imagine that a donkey has to be there bringing Mary 
to the place of Jesus' birth in the manger because they take this long journey, right? They take this long journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It would have been about 90 miles because it's not a straight shot. You would have been going, winding up and through and around mountains. And so there's no way a pregnant Mary could have walked 90 miles. And so we assume, of course, Mary had to have been riding a donkey. Let's, if you don't believe me, let's just read the text for ourselves. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the whole Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. They all returned to their own ancestral town to register for the census. I'm also really glad we did not have to do this this last round, to go back to our hometowns for our censuses. Uh, they can just take the census where we are. Verse 4, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth to Galilee, and he, verse 5, he took them with him, Mary, who he was engaged, and she was expecting a child. And verse 5 says, and while they were there, the time came for her, to be, her baby to be born. If I was Mary, I'd be a little upset. I'd be like, God, you gave me this you know, child in my womb that I didn't really fully ask for. And like we have to happen to go on like this vacation trip for the census to Bethlehem. And this is where I give birth to the child. Like you couldn't have waited until I was back home safely in the comfort of my home. It has to be while we're traveling. This is terrible timing. You're the God who can do everything. Why is this the moment that you choose to induce my labor? But this is the moment. And so she jumps off the donkey after a 90 mile journey on this Uber donkey and finds herself <laughs> also unable <laughs> That's just personally how I picture the experience. Um, and so she finds herself in this really difficult place of also not being able to find anywhere to give birth to this child. The innkeeper turns her away. And so again, myth is, doesn't say in the text that they actually found some type of like um, a stable. It just says that if Jesus was in a trough, so people assume because he was in a trough that that must mean that he was in a stable. But again, the text, the story does not tell us that. Interesting to think about the oral traditions and the written traditions of this story that stick with us. What's even interesting to me as well is to think about this long journey that they were on. This, 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 uh, this donkey, he plays an essential part in delivering Mary safely to Bethlehem where she would then deliver the one who would come to deliver all of us. Yet this donkey gets no name, no credit, just simply in our sanctified imaginations we find out that there's, there has to be a donkey in this story. Yet if it wasn't for this donkey, it's very possible that Mary might not have gotten safely to their destination. Perhaps Mary, Mary might not have made it to the place where Jesus' birth uh, was. But it was this donkey who delivered Mary so that she could deliver the one who would come to deliver us all. You have Joseph in this story too, right? You have Joseph sort of playing this role of, of supporting and helping Mary and he's the whole reason that they're actually having to go back to this town so I could marry. Imagine that Mary is like, Joseph, this is your fault that we had to go back to your town for the census and I'm given birth on this donkey. Like this is unacceptable. But they go on this long journey and Joseph is an interesting character to me particularly because uh, history has really tried to play Joseph's role down. If you think about it in the Christmas story, Joseph actually has no written lines as well. We obviously see Joseph and we know his name. Outside of this Christmas story, the only other time we see Joseph is when they're taking a journey to the temple and Jesus kind of is rebellious and stays back and then they have to go find him. Outside of that, we actually, throughout church history, we do not have hardly anything about Joseph. 
Which is weird, because even if it's not in Scripture, a lot of times there's like Scripture, there's, there's our church history, there's other Gospels and writings that were made that maybe didn't make it into the text in the Apocrypha, and yet we don't have anything about Joseph that gives us really any information. We don't even know when Joseph died. People just, scholars have to assume that Joseph likely died before Jesus' earthly ministry at 30, because we see that Mary is all alone at this wedding where Jesus turns the water into wine. Mary is all alone at Jesus' death three years ago, three years later. So we are left to assume that Joseph must have died early, but there is very little history has washed clean of Joseph. And it's kind of interesting to think about why. If you ever had a nativity set as a kid and Joseph looked really old in it and Mary looked really young, then it was probably made by either Orthodox Christians or by Catholic Christians. Because in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church, it is believed that Joseph was like 90 years old when he took this Virgin Mary as his wife. And they believe this because they believe that Mary was always a virgin that she never consummated her marriage with Joseph, and so she just always stayed in that state. And Joseph, being 90 years old, secured that to be possible. Um, and so there's this sort of narrative that, that, that they really, really want Mary to be a virgin, right? In those traditions, they want Mary to be a virgin, and so the story and the narrative has been that he was 90, that, of course, that's why he died so much sooner than Mary, was because he was so much older than her. And the reason they want Mary to be a virgin forever is because there is this real strong belief, and it sometimes still is true in our culture today, that sex is a defiling act. There's still beliefs in Western culture, but definitely in other parts of our world, where if a woman was to have sex before marriage, she would be considered unclean, unwanted, unneeded, undesirable. She'd be defiled, and the man wouldn't want her. There's this idea that even after marriage, that if you have sex, that somehow it has now made you less divine and more human because you gave in to some incarnal nature and desire. Which is a bit troubling to me because I, I think that God has given us sex as a beautiful gift. And if you have wonderings or thoughts or you've been, you've been taught some of those things before my time here, uh, Forefront did a great series on sex positivity that you might find beneficial to help you maybe dismantle some of these things that the church has historically really tried to uphold, that sex is a sort of dirty, defiling act of our bodies. But for those reasons... They seem to have washed Joseph clean of most of what we know of him throughout church history and locked us into these few stories right here in the beginning of Jesus' life. Joseph gets very little attention, very little respect, no lines. History has washed him clean. Yet it is also he that helps bring in the Christ child into the world. I did not um, grow up with a father figure in my life, my Dad has struggled with alcoholism and drug abuse for, for most of his adult life, in, in, or starting in his teenage years. And so his, his ability to offer to me the things that I need as a son has been very limited because of his addictive behaviors. And as a consequence also, I've never had like a fatherly figure that I've looked to. And so when I hear the story of Joseph and Mary and bringing Jesus into the world, I, I do find myself asking like, what was Joseph and Jesus' relationship like? What kind of things did Joseph teach Jesus? When did he die, and what things did Joseph leave undone, unable to teach? I think about my own life when I think of those questions, and I'm wondering, what are the things that I was not taught as a man, that I had to learn other ways because my dad wasn't present? What were the ways that the women in my life taught me things that they did not know, but they learned so that they could teach me? What were the lessons 
What were the, was the relationship between Joseph and, and Jesus? I don't know. It's interesting to think about what it would have been like for Joseph in a, having raised an adopted child in a mixed family. I think about so many people who have step-parents, and sometimes there's bitterness and there's anger and there's, there's feelings of, I don't want you in my life, or you're not my real parent. Or on the other side with the step-parent, sometimes there's feelings of, I don't really know you, you're not really mine, I don't feel attached to you, yet I'm supposed to care for you. Feelings of looking at that person and remembering that your now spouse has a history with someone else and the reminders of that, and the pain that that causes, I wonder if Joseph felt those feelings. I wonder what Joseph and Jesus' relationship were like. I wish history would tell us. I wonder what led to Joseph's death. So many wonderings because of his hidden history to us. Like the donkey and like Joseph, their story is not so clear for us. The donkey, completely hidden to us. Joseph, we get only a glimpse so whether, you, whether it's a, the donkey or whether it's Joseph, whether it's shepherds or the wise men that we've talked about in this series, encountering Jesus, though, it was truly only part of their story. It was only part of their story. Their, their story had a beginning long before that, and their story had an end, and it, it kept going, and I always find myself wondering what that was like, that they were a part of a longer and larger story beyond just this moment in history. This last week... Um, Reverend Vanite and I had the opportunity to, to interview a biblical scholar, Episcopal priest, as well as uh, author and professor, Dr. Reverend Will Gaffney. Uh, Dr. Reverend Will Gaffney is uh, truly sort of on this sort of forefront. Um, to, you know, I didn't get any laughs there. I probably overused, <laughs> overused joke. Um, overused. Uh, of this sort of work of theology, of helping us see the people in the text and in the stories that often are hidden, not named, or just sort of underplayed. And one of her sermons in the evolving, from the Evolving Faith Conference, she talked about how in Exodus and Acts, it refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she says that when, when, you refer to, when, when, when the text refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have to ask ourselves, who is missing from that list? Who is missing from that list? Well, I would say that their wives and concubines are. And that's exactly what Dr. Gaffney says. She says, when, when you say God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are forgetting that God is also the God of Hagar and Sarah and Couture and Rebecca and Leah and Bilhah and Zipphah. You're forgetting that God is also the God of those women. God is also the God of the many female characters whose names are left out of Scripture over and over again and sometimes named and sometimes completely left unnamed. God is their God too. And they have a story. And they have a heart and a passion and a gift and abilities and ways that God used them. And sometimes the text doesn't tell us all the story. Sometimes it is hidden to us she asks the question, why, why do we sometimes leave those people out? Why, why is it that in our text it just says God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and not all of the wives and the concubines and the complexities of the relationship? And she suggests that it's because it's easier to leave them out because if you include them, then you have to really get into the weeds and deal with the hard stuff. Then you have to talk about patriarchy and polygamy and slavery and rape but if you just refer to God as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God, then you don't have to deal with any of the complex human stuff that they were connected to and that connected to them 
to the, cho- the poor choices that they made and the ways they furthered their own agendas and stories instead of the heart and agendas of God. It's easier to just gloss over it. I wonder if perhaps that's why in Joseph's story that history tries to leave him out because it's just too hard to talk about sex and what that means. It's too hard to talk about a mixed family or an unkosher situation. It's too hard to, to confront the reality that perhaps Mary wasn't a virgin for the whole, whole life in which we know through church history that actually that Mary went on to have children and there's disputes about if those are really her children or what the story is there. And they are completely left out of the narrative. Talk about being ticked at your older brother because you don't matter. We talk about a donkey being left out and Joseph being given no lines and wives and concubines of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being glossed over. But all of this, I think, should cause us to ask a question this morning. When we read the scriptures, who's missing? Who do we not see? Let us never open the Bible and just see what is clear to us. But let us read between the lines and always ask, who is missing in this text? Who is missing in this story? How about what is missing in the gaps in my mind of how I see or envision this person? For instance, when I picture the story in my mind playing out, do you picture a white blonde-haired, blue-eyed character? Or do you actually picture someone in the Middle East where all these things played out? Bronze-skinned, Galilean, perhaps. What do you picture? And when you, when you picture the person who's actually not in the real story, you just picture someone else that society has painted for you, what does that cause you to miss? What does that cause you not to see? How does that cause you to miss the very people around you that you somehow decide maybe aren't actually the Imago Dei? Who are the people or the voices that we aren't listening to or seeing and hearing and reading in these scriptures and these stories in our Christmas story? Who are the voices of the people that we're not hearing or seeing at our dinner parties or in our workplaces or in our news sources or in our small groups or in our pulpits or our gatherings at church? Who is missing? Whose stories are going unheard or unseen in these stories? I remember when I was uh, interviewing uh, for jobs to discern if I was going to come here or where I was going to go next in life, one of the people asked me in my interview process, they said, Josh, um, tell me about your favorite author of color. And I remember when they asked that question, I, I sat there with it for a minute and I thought, well, you know, I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts that center uh, black or people of color voices and their experience. And I started sitting with it more and I thought, well, and now I read this person and this person and this person But then I started to think even more further back to that, and I thought, you know, prior to going to Garrett Evangelical to get my master's, so prior to like 25 years old, all that I had read in Bible college and all the books on my shelves in regards to evangelical Christianity and the people who I believe would give me insights on how to live as a Christian, all white, sits straight, male evangelicals. And I realized that when I went for my master's, those professors gave me a plethora of voices and options to hear that I had never heard. And it was those voices and it was those authors of color and those women of color and those Asian authors that, and LGBTQ authors and women authors that changed the way that I viewed Christianity because I saw it as something bigger than what I had been taught. I saw those unseen perspectives and voices when I was pastoring a church in Peoria, um, there was a ministry called Breakfast Club. And this Breakfast Club ministry was started because 
we had found out that there was one day a week in Peoria that those who were experiencing homelessness were not getting a meal at all. And it was because all the church people were in church on Sunday, and after they went to church, they wanted to go get a meal, and then they went home and they rested. And it happened to be that all of the soup kitchens in towns were run by churches, and so Sundays, those who were experiencing homelessness would go without a meal. And so our church that I was serving decided that we were going to do meals on Sunday mornings before church, on like the busiest day of the week for a church. And people would wake up at 5 a.m. and they would start preparing the food. Then they would go and they would, we bought two buses and we went downtown and we brought folks who were experiencing homelessness back to our building where we served over 100 people who were hungry and needed the deliverance, often even just from the cold elements outside. But one of the things that I learned most from serving in that church with that group of people was I learned that people were more than just the sum of their situation. When I first started there, people who would come, I would just call them homeless or street people. And there were people in that chair, we actually refer folks who are coming to our breakfasts as guests, or we refer to them as those who are experiencing homelessness if we're talking with them about their specific situation. And I remember that began to trickle down into so many other areas. They did a ministry to those who were in the foster care and adoptive system. Instead of referring to kids as orphans, they referred to them as children in the foster care and adoptive system. I can remember those who would struggle with addiction. Instead of calling them addicts, they would call them those who were struggling with substance abuse. And they did this because they wanted us to always remember that they are not the sum of where they are right now. That this is only a part and a season in their life and in their story, but their story is so much broader and vast and larger than this. And let us take time to see and know more of them than just this one label we throw on them. Let us truly see them. Because when we do that, we'll realize they're just like us. They're just as complex and nuanced and have just as much of a story as we do. And there's something for us to learn from that. But one of the things that I, I'm also most stuck with me in that experience was I remember one day I was working in the church late and I heard some noise in the kitchen. I got a little nervous. It was dark out. I was the only one in the church building, so I thought. And I walked into the kitchen and there was this older couple that was standing there and they had this huge bucket and they were scraping grease out of this um, uh, grease catcher that came out of the uh, grease trap that came out of the stove. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you here this late at night like getting a bunch of grease out of the stove. And they said, well, we do this every month. We have to get the grease out of this grease trap so that when people come in on Sunday to cook a meal, this is all clean and clear and it prevents a fire, but also it allows us to easily provide a meal for those who are coming. I stood there and I realized, like, clearing the grease trap was not on any volunteer form anywhere. It was not, none of the pastors knew that needed to be done. But it was an essential role. It was an essential part in order for us to be able to deliver a meal to people whose stomachs and bellies were empty. They were the donkey. They were the unnamed person doing the necessary evils of trying to serve people who just needed deliverance from their situation for a day. They were the donkey who showed up with no credit, with no reward, with no one ever seeing or knowing what they were doing, but they showed up month after month to prepare the way so that folks could come on a Sunday and deliver a meal to folks who desperately needed deliverance from a hungry stomach. Few people want to be the donkey. Few of us want to empty grease pans. Few of us want to do the nameless work or the thankless work. 
Few people want to be hidden or unseen or unmentioned or on the unnamed person of a story. Few people want to be the essential part of work, but yet not the main character of a plot. But I think that sometimes that is exactly the work that God is calling us to. I think that sometimes that is exactly where we should intentionally find ourselves. So this morning, church, if you're a parent and you have worked tirelessly through this pandemic to keep food on the table and the house clean and shoes tied and diapers changed and noses wiped and schedules coordinated and homework done while trying to, on top of all that, just maintain your own self-care and sanity and eating right and maybe just trying to have a little bit of time for hobbies or some rest. You may feel like a minor character in this story over the last two years of this pandemic or however long you have served as a parent. Maybe even you feel like a nameless character with no mentions and no lines, but let me remind you this morning, I see you. This community sees you. And I'm going to call this community this morning to take some time over the next few weeks. You don't have church for the next two weeks, but I invite you to be the church after the 19th. And to sit down and to maybe this time call up or write a letter to your parent and say, mom, dad, moms, dads, whatever your relational dynamic is, or whoever raised you, grandma, whoever it may be, and say, here are some memories I have of times when I saw you do this for me. Here are some things you did for me that touched me, and I remember it, and it's meant so much to me. Thank you. I saw you when you did that, and I see you when you do this. Let them know they're seen. Those of you who are struggling with your job, you may be tired of working at a job you hate just to pay the bills and take care of your family or pay off debt or student loans. You may feel like you're at this breaking point and no one at work appreciates you or sees you and maybe you're just like totally left off the company directory or, or you're not even considered eligible for a bonus. And, and you just feel like you do so much more work maybe than the boss that you're serving and yet that person gets 90 times more of the pay you do. I want you to know this morning, I see you. I see you. God sees you. You are part of a story that maybe you may not even know the end to. The donkey had no idea who he carried. The parent has no idea who they raise. But you're part of a larger story. If you oversee people in your workplace, I, I call you, encourage you, as you look into the next year in your budgeting, maybe consider that bonus, that raise for that person that you work for that's worked so hard. Maybe this Advent season, maybe, maybe take the time to write a note to that coworker or that worker that you see in your workplace that maybe goes unseen and unnoticed. Let them know you see them. Who in your life is unseen, misunderstood, underappreciated, Maybe it's time this next year for you to make a commitment to, to listen to a new podcast or read a certain book to learn about your LGBTQ child or family member or friend to, to help you understand them and see them better. Maybe it's time for you to, to finally agree to go to counseling with your spouse and to say, I see you and I see our problems and I see our marriage and it's worth working on. Maybe it's time to finally join a, a book group or a small group or on anti-racism or white fragility for you to, to really deal with the way in which you see others and people of color and instead of just saying, I don't understand this whole BLM thing and just bury your head in the sand, maybe take the time to see them, to see the struggle, to see the pain, to try to understand the story. 
Maybe it's time for you to volunteer at Ruth's Refuge in order to support folks in the immigration system instead of just saying, man, our immigration system is just so broken and it needs to get fixed. Maybe you could be part of a solution. Austin and I just had a conversation last night how um, there is a custodian and a maintenance staff in our building. Often we only run into them when we're in the garage or taking the garbage out. And we've both intentionally, without talking about it, taken time to stop and to talk to them and ask them about their lives. And now we can't pass them without them wanting to stop and talk to us. And we see so many people just act like they don't exist. And Austin and I had a conversation last night that this year for Christmas, we're going to write cards and give money to those folks and say, we appreciate you. Thank you for what you do. One of them drives all the way from Jersey City to Midwood, Brooklyn for work every day. The donkey simply carries the one who will carry us all, Max Lucado says. And so my hope for us this Christmas is that we would explore how in 2022 we can be like the donkey in our Christmas story and be the one who carries the hope of the world by seeing those who have gone unseen on the margins of our homes, our workplaces, and in our society. Church, let us be an ass and deliver Jesus to our world. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.